Good morning. Um, this might look a little funny, but I'm going to keep this mic in front of my face just for recording purposes. Um, we're trying to work some kinks out. Last week it seemed to work okay. Uh, if any of y'all got to listen to John's sermon, who were not here, um, I'll try to keep those posted. But uh, I want to make sure we do this excellent. So um, if you would, please turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> I had originally planned something um, entirely different. But I was asked a question by someone that I have confidence in that led me deem it appropriate to cover this uh, this week. And the question was, how do we reconcile a passage of Scripture when it is in direct conflict with someone's personal experience? Meaning, when we are presenting the gospel or any other passage of Scripture to an individual, and their argument against that Scripture is a personal experience, what do we do? Um, how do we respond? How can we respond? Um, this is one of the very reasons why so many people, so many Christians tremble at the idea of evangelism. Um, if if any, of, any of you have got to witness to someone on a personal one-on-one -on -one experience, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There, uh, there seems to be uh, this this divide between the empirical and the anecdotal, which is what we will go over today. Um, you'll you'll have some scripture ready for the individual, and they'll say, "Yeah, but right." I pick on Damien, but yeah, but um, and or, ordinarily, what somebody will do is they'll say, "Yeah, but I experienced this," or "Yeah, but I have a friend that experienced this," so that can't be true. So, how do we reconcile those things? Well, first, we must know what our foundation is. What is our starting point? Uh, what is it that we say we hold firm to above all else? So I'm in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to read verses 16 and 17 to begin with. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Um, so we as Christians, we must first agree. We must first agree that these scriptures, the holy scriptures, are the infallible word of God. We have to start there. Um, if we can't start there, then the conversation probably isn't going to get very far. Um, to give you an example, um, if I'm witnessing to someone that I know is an unbeliever, a firm unbeliever, or a devout atheist is what uh, I've heard them referred to as. If I say, well, the scriptures say this, while that might be sufficient for you, you are basically um, conveying to them a passage in a book that they do not believe is true. Okay, so it's, it might seem like you're spinning your wheels a bit. Um, but this is the most basic truths that all Christians must first agree upon above all else. Um, so everything that we discuss from this point, and I, I don't mean from this point today, I mean from here on out, whether it be Noah's lessons or whoever's teaching, John's sermons, our Bible studies, or whatever the case may be, as brothers and sisters, we must absolutely agree that this is absolutely true. Um, so in fact, it is this word that we're reading today is so perfectly flawless that my attempt at interpreting, expressing, and conveying to you the importance of this topic today, it has actually now diluted its holiness. 
This is how holy this word is. That me trying to explain this to you makes what I'm saying less holy. Now, why do I say that? Because my words are not holy. My words are not infallible. So now I must attempt to take something that has already been perfected and somehow communicate it in such a way that it is more easily digestible to us. So why do I have to do that? It is because we rarely, if ever, think about things or see things through a lens of holiness. Okay, so we all understand where I'm at at this point. Me just, it would probably more pro be more profitable for me or for us if we could look at the scriptures through the proper lens, through the appropriate lens, if I just got up here and read it. It would be more beneficial to us. But because we are not holy, we must have it bottom shelved, right? We need it. We need somebody to explain it in simple terms. Uh, in the words of Michael Scott, yeah. All right, now tell me like I'm, a fifth grader. That's basically what we have to do now. We have to dumb down God's holiness in order for us to try to accept any of it. Um, but it stems from a lack of the appropriate reverence for God's word. Now, I know if you guys have been here or you've heard John preach at all, this is what he centers around, is the holiness of God, the holiness of God's word, and the perfection of God's word. So in truth, if we kept our minds on high things, it would serve us better uh, if I read it without commentary. So, now that we are in agreement, hopefully, um, with the inerrancy of scriptures, right? Inerrancy means there is no flaw. Then we need to define two terms today. This is the two terms that I had up here earlier. Empirical evidence and anecdotal evidence. Empirical evidence, evidence that can be observed through experimentation or proven. Okay, that's our empirical evidence. Anecdotal evidence, evidence in the form of stories that people tell about what has happened to them. Their conclusions are not supported by data. Okay, so a couple of examples here. If you read a history, well, maybe not today, but it should be if you read a history book about the... Um, what occurred during World War II, there is empirical data there, right? We have document. We have record of it. We know that these things happen. Anecdotal data or anecdotal evidence would be something like, I'm telling you a story about an experience that I had, okay? You can't verify whether it's true or not. You have to either decide that what I'm saying is true or that it's not. We're on the same page. Okay, so I want us to look at something briefly. I, had a, I got a picture up here. This is a man, Stephen Crowder. Uh, he's pretty recognizable for uh, some of you people that like watching the news and stuff. Um, he does this. Uh, he does this bit. It's called "Change My Mind." Uh, and just briefly, if you don't know what he does, um, in, in a nutshell, he takes a very controversial topic. Obviously, right? He'll take a very controversial topic, normally set up in front of a university. Um, he'll take this inflammatory topic and he states his beliefs on that topic unapologetically okay now then what he does is he opens himself up to discourse and dialogue about his views and encourages the opportunity for other people to express their opposing views okay to the extent of he doesn't want someone to sit down that agrees with him he wants to have some discourse there with someone that argues 
Okay? So what he does is he then tries to reason with these individuals. He tries to reason with them to show them that even if they go away, still not agreeing that they can be civil. Right? This man sometimes is, behaves more like a Christian than most Christians do in that regard, is that he can reason over a topic and go away and not be upset about it. A lot of times we will t take a topic and I'm right and I'm right and I don't care what you say, I'm right. Um, so why, why am I saying this? Because what he does is he will allow this person to express their point of view. He will allow them to say why they don't think that he's right, uh, why they think he's absolutely wrong, he'll let them go through their whole spill and then at the end of it he says okay let me tell you what i believe about this topic and let me show you the data to reinforce what my belief is let me show you why i believe this to be true so he uses empirical data to explain his belief and then almost without fail the other individual the opposing view will try to use anecdotes to say why Stephen's belief or argument is invalid. Okay, he'll say, uh, for instance, he did one on uh, gun control. And, and people were saying gun control should be mandated. People shouldn't be allowed to have guns. People sh should turn their guns in, fill in the blank, right? But I don't really care about handguns. I care about assault rifles. We need to get assault rifles out off the street. Well, then he brings them empirical data showing that there are more murders committed each year with handguns than with assault rifles right? In Chicago alone. So he challenges them with, why not ban handguns while you're at it? And then they argue, well, it's because this, this guy over here did this one thing this one time, or I know somebody and my mom got new, my mom's cousin's aunt knew fill in the blank, right? And they will use anecdotal evidence to refute his argument. That doesn't work, right? But why do they resort to that? Because he can't argue against it. Okay. Now, I know that was long-winded, but it's to get around to this point, is that our empirical data as Christians is the holy word of God, okay? Our empirical data is every passage of Scripture. And when um, today, when Christians use this same type of method and they're faced with a passage of Scripture that they don't agree with or understand, they use the argument well, that's your interpretation of it, right? Well, that it's been diluted so many times because it's been translated so many times that that it's the real meaning of that verse has now been lost in translation. Tangent here. Do a quick three-minute Google search about the Council of Trent, and it will show that that argument is incorrect, okay? Just takes a little bit of diligence. But what happens? We don't do that work, so we believe them. Well, it has been translated like, a, I mean, I, my Bible app alone, I've got 250 different versions. So which one is right? Go look up the Council of Trent. So what I'm telling you is that when we're faced with something as Christians that we don't agree with in the scriptures, we try to dismiss it in some way. Let's look at Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, because this is where people say, well, it's your interpretation of the scriptures. It's your interpretation it says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's the end of the argument, right? If someone says that they're a Christian and they say, well, that's your interpretation of it. That's not my interpretation of it. I just read it. That's not an interpretation. You just don't like it, right? That's what it comes down to. Most of us have experienced this. And the scriptures tell us here, it's the scriptures actually qualify themselves. It says this word is not open to interpretation. It is the all-inspired word of God that men were guided by the Holy Spirit. So, this isn't my interpretation. It's just, it's just what it says. And now it's up to you whether you believe it or not. That's where the difficulty comes in. So, here's my point today. We can never supplement or substitute our empirical data with anecdotal evidence. Okay, let me say that again. We can never substitute or supplement our empirical with what is anecdotal. If anecdotal evidence is ever used, it is to be used solely to reinforce what is empirical. You understand? So you can read a passage of scripture to someone, and then you can explain it to them in such a way that makes sense to them, like we do in Bible studies, right? Or, okay, well, it's kind of like this, and you might give a personal experience, hopefully brief, about how I know that this is true. I don't just believe it's to be true, but now I know it is because of this thing that I have witnessed. But those two should never are never interchangeable, okay? So this, our, our Holy Bible, is our empirical data. Every word, every line, every precept. It is true. It is proven to be true through the test of time. It is unchanging. It does not evolve because it has already been perfected. Nothing that we add to it can make it any better. And everything else, listen to this, everything else is anecdotal. Okay? The scriptures alone are what's true. Everything else is anecdotal. Now, I'm not saying that your experience is not valid or did not happen. I'm saying it is not biblical, okay? It is not the scriptural truth. It is not the end-all, be-all. So when Joseph Smith comes along and says, hey, I got a new revelation, you can say, that's not what the scriptures say, right? So, um, everything else is anecdotal, and most of the time it's completely unnecessary, like I said before uh, with me. So do I believe that anyone in this church today would intentionally misrepresent Christ or his word? I don't think so. I'm looking around, right? Keith, no. Um, no, absolutely not. I do not think someone would intentionally misrepresent God or his principles. However, I think we do it unintentionally all the time. Okay? Um, as a matter of fact, I said this very thing, so this might sound familiar, because I did this as a lesson uh, a little over a year ago. So Keith and Amanda and probably Jordan might have heard this before. But I gave this very lesson a year ago, and I said this very thing. I don't think any of you would intentionally misrepresent the scriptures to a different group of people and was wrong. Now, that is not a slight to them. But in, once you approach someone with the word and you say, this is the word, this is just what it says. And they say, well, I don't agree with that. 
That's difficult, right? We've experienced this. So allow me to give you a few um, good examples of how good-intentioned people or well-intentioned people often mislead others, okay? Uh, just a few statements here. God loves you, no exceptions, right? Or God loves the sinner, not the sin. Now, I'm not going to go over this one today because I did a whole sermon on it a couple months ago, all right? Go back and look on YouTube. <laughs> Shameless plug. Um, the second one, God won't give you more than you can handle. Is that true? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, I may not have it up there. I'm sorry, Keith, if I don't have it up there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is what people use when they try to argue God won't give you more than you can handle. It says, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able that sounds like that's true, doesn't it? But see, we put a period where God puts a comma. So we take this out of context. Anytime that I teach, I always try to emphasize there's three things that are crucial, right? Three things. One of those things is context. We lose all context with this verse. So what does 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 say? And 13 in its entirety. It says, so whoever thinks he stands, must be careful not to fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, comma, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. So does he give you more than you can handle? Constantly, constantly. Do you know why? Because he wants you to turn to him constantly. And he provides the way constantly. Now, the few times to where you think, okay, God's given me just enough, that's because he's given you a minute to rest. He's given you a minute to breathe. And then guess what? Here comes more trials. That's what's going to happen. He's forging you slowly. So we know, okay, I need, a, I need some rest. And he, will, he might, let me rephrase that, he might bring it. But with Job, did God give Job more than he could handle? So, he gives us more than we can handle all the time. Um, but he does that so that we have nowhere to turn but to him. Uh, I know that the times when my relationship with God were the strongest is when I needed him the most. Right? That's also where you see the most growth. Isn't that crazy? I, I, uh, me and Noah have talked. Uh, and after Noah does his series, he's going to let me do the series I, I did on James. James might be my favorite book in the Bible even though you're not supposed to have favorites. But <clears throat> it talks about how you're slowly forged and how we constantly are asking God for relief. But we see our biggest amount of growth when we are facing trials in the middle of them when they're the hardest. And then once we come out of that, we're like, oh, I knew I could do it. Right? <laughs> That's normally how we behave. Um, let's go over one more. Jesus was a friend of sinners. I know, again, this is a common one we've probably all heard. Um, and we all, all know it's untrue, but why is it not true? Uh, this one has been taken out of context so many times that it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, in the very same sentence, Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard and a reveler. Uh, I didn't put it up here, but it's Matthew eleven nineteen. if you want to look that up. So Matthew eleven nineteen is where... Jesus is called a friend of sinners. This is not a self-title. 
Okay? This is a title given to him by people who are persecuting him. Right? This is not something that sounds this this some grand uh, title of his. This is something to mock him. Um, so, you know, we would never call Christ a glutton. We would never call him a drunkard or a reveler. So why would we call him a friend? Well, briefly, because then it gives us excuse, right? If I say Jesus is a friend of sinners, that tells me, well, he's my friend because I'm a sinner. But what it doesn't do is bring us to repentance. It allows us to remain in sin. So, why does this matter? Why does all this matter? Because we, as Christians, are slowly replacing what is empirical with what is anecdotal. We are slowly and continually replacing what is empirical with that that is anecdotal. What we think sounds good, what sounds good to the flesh, what we've been taught our whole life. You know, I heard somebody say, uh, an individual that I had a lot of confidence in, he said, well, I've been taught that way my whole life. That's how my grandmother taught me. Are you saying she's a liar? I said, no, I'm not saying she's a liar. I'm just saying she's wrong. Of course, I didn't like that. but And I did that deliberately, right? But it's true. Your grandma can be wrong. She probably is, right? My Both my grandmas are wrong, and I don't even know them, you know? So, Yes, people can be wrong. Do not take someone's word for it, regardless of how much confidence you have in the individual, because they may be unintentionally misleading you. So how often have we heard from pulpits just these phrases, right? Just the phrases I went over numerous times. And and to bring it home a little more, not to throw another church under the bus, because that is not what I'm here to do by any means, but Within the past year, so we've been here for six months, right? Roughly been on our own for about six months. Within the year, I've seen three opportunities where someone stood up and replaced the gospel presentation with a testimony. I've seen three opportunities for a gospel proclamation replaced with anecdotes. There is not a substitute for the gospel. Okay, your testimony is not a supplement for the gospel. Your testimony definitely can drive a point home with a gospel presentation. But it is not to be replaced or is not to replace what the gospel actually says. So let me be as clear as I can. My testimony for those of you that knew me prior, which is just a few, my testimony is one that some people were like, if Josh can get saved, anybody can, right? However, it is still not a replacement for the gospel. There is no replacement. There is no substitute. So we see these things, these sayings, we see these um, anecdotes, these testimonies replacing a gospel proclamation, but we see them sanctioned by the church. That's where the problem lies. Do I see anything wrong with someone giving their testimony? A little, but we can get into that later. But it should not be in a Sunday morning service where there's no gospel preached. So, um, when we hear these things and we challenge them by this one simple statement, which is, that's not what the scriptures say. We are almost immediately met with that opposition of the anecdotal. 
right? That's what I've been taught my whole life. It's hard to argue against that, isn't it? Everybody knows me and Noah love to argue, right? We love to argue, and we're good at it, I think. I am. Noah's not as good as me. No, we're good at arguing, and we face this, and it's like hitting a roadblock. You're like, I don't know what to tell you, but they're wrong. They're not right. So, we cannot replace the gospel with what we think about God, okay? When we are, when we are presenting the gospel, we must, must, must go to the scriptures. If you don't know the scriptures, learn them. There's no excuse. There's no excuse, right? Uh, I'm going to pick on Keith for a minute, okay? Not, not knocking Keith. It's actually a praise to Keith because it shows his humility. Where when John first got up and preached, y'all know John is an intellectual guy. And Keith said, I think I'm going to have to bust a dictionary out to hear, to understand some of these things that he said, right? But then he told me later that, you know, he knows his scripture. He knows it better than I do. And he said, and I don't have an excuse. I've been a Christian a lot longer. I guess I better start reading. I was like, man. Keith Dunn convicted me. I better start reading too. You know, it's like, that's exactly what that is, is that we cannot, can no longer be complacent with where we think we stand. Um, it's not what we think we believe about God, but it's about what he says about himself in his word. And he clearly tells us that there's only one way that people truly come to the cross, and that is by preaching the gospel. Romans 1, 16 and 17 for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One more passage, Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel has no substitute. It is paramount. If we were... Uh, Mickey Hunt actually asked me recently to sum up the gospel in one sentence. The gospel is a message from God to us, revealing to us through the scriptures what he has done for us in the past in order to save us from himself. Let me repeat that. The gospel is a message from God to you, revealing to us through the scriptures what he has done for us in the past in order to save us from himself. So God has given us his holy word and his holy law to reveal to us the nature of our souls. We are utterly detestable. That's what we were talking about this morning. A clear view of who we are. We are utterly detestable when compared to Christ's holiness. That's what matters. It doesn't matter how good you are in comparison to someone else. It matters your righteousness in comparison to Christ, and you will always be unrighteous in his comparison, in his light. There's nothing good in us. 
It says our hearts are wickedly deceitful and they seek only after self. And it is through understanding this, like we talked about this morning, that we understand there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves from justice. You know, we, we cry out for justice when someone wrongs us, right? Someone hit my car. I need justice. But when you are the perpetrator, how often do we cry for mercy? Justice will be served. So we think that when, when, when someone has done something detestable in our sight, that they deserve something difficult, something hard, something uh, unmerciful. But we don't believe that when it's us. It's because we are not just and we are not holy that we can never be in the presence of a holy and just God, not in our current state. So it is only through this revelation that we know that we are in dire need of a Savior. And because the only one who could be the perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God was God himself, he came to earth and humbled himself, lowered himself in the form of a man, so that he could die in your place. It was through his death that the price of our sins was paid, but it was through his resurrection that our inheritance as joint heirs in Christ were eternally sealed. He did this for us because he loves us. We say that. But the more important thing is he did this for his glory. He saved us to glorify himself. So that is now our responsibility. Whatever experience you have or anyone else has, how could that experience replace the gospel? How could that experience even compare to what Christ has done? So when we preach the gospel, anecdotes are permissible only when they are used to reinforce the scripture, the empirical. But they are never, we are never to use the empirical to try to prove anecdotes. And that's normally where we get caught up. We hear an anecdote from somebody and we try to find scripture that verifies that. We're starting at the wrong point. So when you, when you have a personal experience that you know is true, meaning I know that it occurred, it happened to me, right? You can't argue with that. I know it happened. But it is in direct conflict with what the word teaches. What do you do? That is when your true character is shown. Do you go to the scriptures and say, that's not, that can't be what it means because I know that this is true. I know that I can lose my salvation because I got saved when I was five and then I lived like a hellion for 10 years and then I came back to Christ. I know I can lose it. My question that I always answer with that is, how do you know? Well, because if I would have died then, then I, I would have went to hell. But you didn't die. So how do you know? Right? We must constantly, constantly, constantly be seeking the scriptures. We cannot stress this enough. If Cameron teaches, if Noah teaches, if Donald teaches, if I teach, if John teaches, whoever. We cannot stress enough to go to the scriptures. So we must um, conclude that if our experience does not line up with what is empirical, that our experience is flawed. So, whatever we're searching for, 
the answer is in here. It's in the scripture. It's in the Bible. You just simply have to find it, and you have to be diligent about it. You can't open your Bible and say, God, please speak to me today and put your finger on a verse and say, that's what he he wants me to hear today. And I'm going to use that in some way out of context to go and pursue something that I already wanted anyway. You can't rely on your own feelings. You cannot rely on your own beliefs. You cannot rely on presuppositions or preconceived notions because our hearts are wickedly deceitful. We must have an unwavering standard that we constantly and consistently turn to. And this is it. The scriptures are it. So this week, I'm challenging myself here to think about maybe some of these experiences that you've had that you know are in conflict with what the word teaches and analyze those because the scriptures are not wrong. They never are. If y'all would uh, please stand. Noah, would you pray for us, please?